Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 202 of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Air Tourist Sports Podcast. People, I told you over the weekend, I said Feast Week is maybe the best week outside of Championship Week in the NCAA tournament of the college basketball season. I don't even think it might be. It is. And this week it has delivered. I almost had to do an emergency podcast on Wednesday after, uh, don't know if you heard, Duke lost to Stephen F. Austin. Yes, that really happened. We will talk about that. I'm going to open with Maui. I think Dayton, even though they lost this tournament, has very much emerged as a team that we have to watch all season long. We'll get into Duke. We'll get into just the fact that, let's be honest, there's not really any great teams in college basketball this year, which, by the way, might not be a terrible thing. We'll wrap with Kentucky on the college basketball side as we find out that Nate Sestina Nate Sestina is going to be out an extended period of time. We'll switch over to football, and listen, you guys know the drill. Uh, It's obviously a huge waking in college football. We will talk about Michigan, Ohio State. We'll talk about Auburn, Alabama, and we'll also talk about just how the playoff committee kind of really screwed up this week. I did not like this idea that they were going to move Ohio State ahead of LSU after a disappointing effort, so we will get into all of that. Big show. We're going to jump from topic to topic, shot place to play, shot to shot, sport to sport, whatever. But if you like this show, this is going to be an all-timer. It is a great week. As I said, I almost had to have an emergency pod after the Duke loss. Decided to wait until today, and we're going to get into it all. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. Do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android Podcast Addict is the way to go. You can do it on Spotify. You can do it on TuneIn Radio. You can do it on Pod Paradise. Wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're downloading this show. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know what needs to be worked on. And I will continue to uh, work to make this the best show that I possibly can. You can follow me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And I'll wrap on this. I've teased it for a few weeks now. If you're going to be in Vegas for the CBS Sports Classic, that is Ohio State, Kentucky, UCLA, North Carolina, that game is on, those two games are on December 21st. We are going to have an Aaron Torres podcast get together in Vegas. Make sure you reach out to me. I almost certainly have the date and time finalized. uh, finalized. It's almost certainly going to be Friday afternoon 
the day before the game, December 20th, around happy hour time. We'll have apps, drink specials, all that kind of stuff. But make sure you reach out to me to let me know. A lot of you already have, but if you're going to be in Vegas, if you want to come, if you want to hang out, like I said, drink specials, cool sports bar that I work with a lot in Vegas, make sure you connect with me. You can find me wherever you want to reach out. Just let me know so I can keep you updated. Reach out by uh, email, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions at gmail.com. Reach out by Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast or Twitter, Aaron Torres or Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Just let me know that you're going to be in Vegas. And then if you're interested, obviously, I will get you details. I'll be sharing the details here on this show. But again, it just comes down to connect with me. Let me know so I can keep you in the loop. All right. We are going to bounce around, as I said, because this is one of those shows that there's so much going on. I don't know that there's a topic that requires 20 minutes off the top like James Wiseman or whatever. You know, I'm trying to think of other shows. I remember we did a long segment when Steve Alford got fired, etc. But I'll tell you this, a lot of great stuff going on in college basketball. And so because of it, let's get into it right away because what you need to know very quickly is this. The Maui Invitational, don't know if you've heard of it. It delivered, as always, Kansas wins the championship 90 to 84. They beat Dayton in overtime. We're going to get to Kansas in a minute, but I'll start by saying this. I actually think the story of the game and the story of the tournament was actually Dayton because if you watch that game and if you watch the tournament, Dayton, I think, was the breakout. If such a thing exists, they were the breakout star of the tournament, right? And, and, and I said this off the top and I stand by it is what makes college basketball great is that we always get these stories, right? And I'll give um, friend of the show Aaron, uh, friend of the show Gary Parrish has said this quite regularly on his on his podcast. Is the great thing about college basketball is the storylines always emerge. We don't always know where they're coming. Sometimes they're coming from the marquee programs, from the Dukes with Zion Williamson's, from the Kentuckys with John Wall, or with uh, an under, a pursuit for an undefeated season in 2015. And then other times they come from the smaller programs. It's from the Jimmer Fredettes at BYU. It's from uh, Trey Young at Oklahoma. I know that's not a small program, but it's obviously not a traditional basketball power. And I think Dayton right now is going to become one of these stories. Because if you watch this game and you watch this tournament, I can tell you this. You can't come out of this tournament not saying, and I know I just used a triple negative, so forgive me. You can't come out of this tournament not saying that Dayton's not frankly, a top 10, top 12, top 15 team in college basketball right now. I know it sounds crazy, but they went to Maui. They beat the breaks off of Georgia, which by the way, shout out to Georgia, almost lost to Chaminade. Shout out to Tom Crean. Uh, Anthony Edwards is basically the only thing worth watching at Georgia. He was unbelievable, but Dayton crushes Georgia. They beat Virginia Tech convincingly, and then they go to the Maui Invitational Final. And again, if you guys watch that game, you already know what I'm going to tell you, which is very simply that they were phenomenal. They were awesome. They probably, if we're being perfectly honest, outplayed Kansas for most of that game. And I thought it was actually kind of a great sign for Dayton, even though they lost the game. Listen, you never want to lose games like that. We get it. But this was a team that was ahead at halftime with their best player, Obi Toppin, who I told you about on last episode. Obi Toppin had 11 points, but he wasn't dominating and Dayton was still down or still ahead going into halftime and really had the game mostly in control late 
It goes to overtime. Kansas ends up, look, they just had more bodies. They were bigger. They were more physical. But Dayton was very much in that game and in position to win that game. And at the end, they just ran out of gas. And if you watch the game, you saw. But all of a sudden, they've been making all these tough shots. And they start missing layups. And they start missing foul shots. And so it ends up in one of these situations where Kansas pulls away. But again, I think Dayton is the story. And when I look at college basketball as a whole, when I look at Dayton, what I say is this. If they can go to Maui and they can beat Georgia, which should be probably realistically the seventh or eighth best team in the SEC, I don't know that they are. I personally have them a little lower, but talent-wise, they're right there. If they can beat Virginia Tech, who beat Michigan State the day before, and if they can play with Kansas for 45 minutes, even if they didn't win, that to me looks like a team that is going to be in the top 10, top 15 somewhere all season long. And they're going to be the kind of team that I think if they play up to their potential, they could be this year's Wichita. Or like I said, you know, previous years we've had BYU, we've had, um, you know, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head some of these teams that have emerged from non-tradition, non-power conference. Obviously, look, we had Nevada last year. Dayton can be that team that if they play to their potential, they could be a three or four seed come tournament time, and they could be the type of team that beats some really good teams, goes to a Sweet 16, goes to an Elite Eight. I don't even think it's inconceivable that they go to the Final Four with the way they played this week. So it was an incredible effort. It was an incredible job by them. And I think they've established themselves as one of those teams that we are absolutely going to have to watch throughout this season because they can play with anybody. I would also add, I think the kid Obi Toppin, that kid to me looks every bit as good as anybody in college basketball. And I know we do this in college basketball where we fall so in love with the freshmen, fall in love with Cole Anthony, we fall in love with Anthony Edwards, with James Wiseman, with Tyrese Maxey, with whoever the guys are, Lester Quinones at Memphis, Precious Achua at Memphis. You watch Obi Toppin, that dude's just a grown man. I mean, he's about... 6'8", 6'9", super long arms. He can defend basically all five positions. And I'm telling you right now, I know this is going to sound crazy and maybe I'll look stupid. I've looked stupid before. I'm going to look stupid again. But I'm recording this on November 28th, Thanksgiving Day. I would not be surprised if by the end of the year, if this kid continues to play the way that he has, if we are not talking about him, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, as the potential number one pick in the draft. He's currently averaging 23 points, eight boards per game. Obviously, look, he's probably not going to play the level of competition uh, going forward that he has early in the season. But I think, look, Dayton's going to be one of those teams that it's going to be a Tuesday night and you're flipping channels and maybe your team isn't playing and it's going to be like, okay, Duke and Wake Forest are playing on ACC Network and, you know, whatever, Michigan and Indiana are playing on Big Ten and, like, Dayton's playing VCU on whatever, CBS Sports Network, and you're going to be like, man, I'm going to watch Dayton. That team's fun. And so I just think it was a great effort by them. I think they're going to be a story that we need to continue to watch all year. And as I said, if they can play with Kansas for 45 minutes and be in a position to win, outplay them for most of that game, I think it's a great sign for them going forward. I do want to give a little bit of credit to Kansas. And listen, I get it. I'm the guy that started calling them the Fire Festival of College Basketball because it looked all so good on social media. And then next thing you know, 
it's a complete disaster, and people are eating bread sandwiches in the corner as Kansas is losing game after game after game last year. I do think that this team, after that disappointing loss to Duke to open the season, I think they've gotten their mojo back, and I think they've kind of figured out who they are and what they have to do to be successful, and listen, this happens sometimes in college basketball, right? We talk about this all the time with Kentucky. John Calipari gets an entirely new roster every year, and it sometimes takes him until January or even February to figure out how to play, how to take advantage of the guys on his roster, how to do the things that he needs to do to win at the highest level. And I think Kansas, it took them a minute. They did not look good against Duke, but I thought overall in this tournament, they looked a lot better. Look, they're going to play through Adoka as a bouquet. If you watch this tournament, you saw that basically he is the guy that he's always been, low post monster can't be single team. Heck, Vern Carey, who's one of the biggest, strongest kids in college basketball, couldn't single cover him against when Duke played them earlier this year. Duke did a good job of, of doubling him and mitigating him, but I think everything is going to run through him. Devon Dotson's going to make plays off the dribble, and then they're just going to have two or three guys on the perimeter that have to make shots, that have to make plays off the dribble themselves. Ochai Abaji, who was awesome in this tournament, um, Isaiah Moss, who is actually out against Duke. And so I'll give Kansas credit. Listen, I, I'll, I'll be critical when it warrants being critical, but I'm not going to be critical just for the sake of it. And I thought Kansas, I think they figured out their mojo. I think they figured out who they are, how they're going to have to play to win. So credit to them, and that's going to be a good win for them going forward. I'm telling you, that Dayton team is a real team. I said it after the Georgia game in the first night, but they looked the part. They've got shooting, they've got scoring, they can play with anybody, and so as good of a tournament as it was for Dayton, it was just as good for Kansas because they picked up the win over Dayton. You know who didn't pick up a win this weekend? Not sure if you heard, but Duke lost to Stephen F. Austin on Tuesday night, and it was one of those crazy games that I was out on Tuesday running errands, getting ready for Thanksgiving, and I knew Maui was going on, and I knew this tournament was going on, I knew that tournament was going on, and I'm coming home. I'm in my parking garage at my apartment, and my buddy texts me. He goes, uh, dude, where can I get this Duke game? And I knew Duke was playing, and I knew it had to be pretty close to being over. So I said to him, I was like, uh, I think it's on ACC Network. He goes, no, man. He goes, it's close. And it was, I don't know, a two, three-point game with four or five minutes to go when he texted me. So I sprint upstairs. First of all, shout out to the ACC Network. The ACC Network was created to promote this conference that isn't the SEC, that isn't the Big Ten, um, and basically, if you're the ACC Network, all you have to do is this. Play all the basketball, play all the football games that people want to watch, and basically, just make sure you never miss a Duke or a North Carolina game. If you just do those two things, people will love the ACC Network. Instead, what do they do? The Duke game wasn't on the ACC Network. It wasn't on ESPN or ESPN2. I eventually found it on Fox Sports Regional 11 or whatever, but it's like, dude, what's the point of having an ACC network if you're not going to play a Duke game? Can you imagine the SEC network saying, you know, we got this Kentucky basketball game tonight, but let's put on, uh, you know, Texas A&M, South Carolina women's volleyball. That sounds like a real winning scheduling proposition. So shout out to the ACC. Literally, you're only in place to play football games, Duke and North Carolina basketball games, and you can't even do that on the ups, the biggest upset of the season. And so yeah, Duke lost the final score in that game. They, they too actually went to overtime, just like Dayton and Kansas. Duke ends up playing Stephen F. Austin. They lose 85-83 in overtime. 
And I'll say this, look, I know it's easy to criticize Duke, but first of all, a lot of teams have taken bad losses early. We're going to get into that in a minute. But even before that, I do think that this game kind of showed, and this happened last year too. I don't know if how, how many of you guys have been listening to this show since its inception, but I remember coming on after the Duke-Kentucky game at the, CB, at the Champions Classic, and in that game, I vividly remember Nick Coffey and I talking about, this was the game where Zion's debut, RJ Barrett's debut, they win by 40, and I remember saying, like, it was a great win for, for Duke, but that was probably, like, the best that Duke could ever play. And I remember that night they had like three turnovers and whatever, and whatever, whatever. Why do I bring it up? It's because when Duke opened against Kansas this year, I had real concerns about them. I had real concerns about the fact that I didn't think they were a great three-point shooting team. The fact that they don't really have a primary ball handler except for Trey Jones. The fact that Matt Hurt, I think, is slow and unathletic, and I didn't know how he was going to get his shot off. I thought Vern Carey was slow and unathletic, but man, did I miss on that one. He's been awesome. But the point is, the Kansas game... I think threw out of whack what the actual expectation should be of Duke, which is that they're a nice team. They're going to compete for an ACC title. They're going to compete with North Carolina and Louisville and Virginia at the top of the ACC. They'll end up with a two or a three or a four seed. But they weren't as good as they looked against Kansas, and I think it showed against Stephen F. Austin. They lose 85-83. They basically got every call down the stretch just to even get to overtime, but if you look at the box score, the problems that we thought Duke was going to have, they had. They went 5 for 15 from 3. They turned the ball over 22 times. Uh, listen, it was a bad night for Trey Jones, but whenever you have 22 turnovers, it's not a winning proposition. They missed a bunch of foul shots. And really, outside of Vernon Carey down low, who again, he's been awesome. I missed on Vernon Carey. I'll own that I wasn't right on Vernon Carey, but basically everything else has gone as I said it would, and now you look at Duke, and they are a team that very much has real questions. And so I hate to say it, but this Stephen F. Austin thing I don't think is an aberration. I do think Duke's going to have other weird losses. They're going to go on the road to whoever, fill in the blank in the ACC, Georgia Tech or Boston College or NC State or somebody, and they're going to take losses. But I think this is also a year, as I said off the top, and I'm going to get into this now, which is... I don't think there's any great teams. And it's crazy because I've been hesitant to kind of make that statement. You know, it's one of those deals where you hear these narratives from some of the other college basketball writers, and I just don't always believe them. I tend to think that the college basketball media, other media too, but college basketball media tends to go in a pack and everybody likes everybody likes the same guys and everybody hates the same guys and everybody likes the same teams. And I, I you know, you know me, I'm a lone wolf. I have my own wolf pack. You know, I'm like Alan from The Hangover. I don't need a wolf pack. I got my own wolf pack. That's me. That's A.T. And so I bring that up because everyone was saying right off the top, oh, there's no great teams. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Kentucky, when they're healthy, looks pretty good. Duke looks pretty good. Michigan State looks pretty good. Seton Hall looks pretty good. But I'll say this now. That narrative, while I tend to disagree with a lot of the college basketball media on some stuff, I do think the there's no great teams in college basketball this year narrative, I think it actually holds water this year. Because you think about the scene in college basketball right now, you think about the fact that Kentucky obviously lost to Evansville. Now, people ask me, by the way, people are like, dude, what's worse, Stephen F. Austin or Kentucky to Evansville? I will defend Kentucky on this, and it's not just because I wrote the Kentucky book and all that stuff. 
Kentucky was pretty banged up. I mean, they lost to Evansville without EJ Montgomery. Ashton Hagens was less than 100%. Duke had everybody on the floor, and everybody was relatively healthy. Look, Vernon Carey played 32 minutes. Tyus Jones played all 45 minutes. Cassius Stanley played 40. So, like, let, let's not, you know, throw a pity party for Duke here. At the very least, Kentucky can claim, well, we were banged up when we lost to Evansville. Duke has no such excuse. And so I'm not saying the Evansville loss was okay for Kentucky, but I'm just saying there are reasons that Kentucky struggled in that game. But you look at the bigger picture, okay? Duke has already lost to Stephen F. Austin. Almost a 30-point favorite, they end up losing straight up at home. Kentucky has lost to Evansville at home. Michigan State has two losses. Villanova has two losses. Kansas got beat by the best team that they've played, which is Duke, although, again, they have a nice win over Dayton. But... You know, uh, Seton Hall has two losses already. They lost in Atlantis. Um, so you go on and on down the list. And I really do think this is one of those years where maybe there really aren't any great teams. And, and I'll tell you this. I don't know that it's bad for college basketball. Now, would I love for a year like last year where Kentucky's really good and North Carolina's really good and Duke's really good and basically all the programs that you want to be good are good. Virginia was really good last year. Tennessee was good, even though they're not kind of a traditional blue blood program. Yeah, I would love it. But I also think it's okay for college basketball if teams in the ACC feel like we can go into Cameron and compete with Duke. We're not scared of them like we were last year with Zion and R.J. Barrett. I think it's good for college basketball if it's a Virginia or a Louisville or an NC State or a North Carolina. It's like, yeah, those guys don't really scare me. Let's go to Cameron and whip some butt, you know? I, I think it's good for the SEC when teams are ready to challenge Kentucky. We'll see if Florida's that team. Maybe not. But, by the way, you talk about a team that might be great. Auburn's awesome. So I'm just saying, I, I do think that the, the narrative might be right. There are no great teams, but I would also say this. Kentucky lost to Seton Hall at this time last year. Uh, North Carolina lost to Texas at this time last year. So losses do happen, and, and I'm curious to see if we get towards December, January, February, if teams do start to separate themselves. I would add, I do think that this is probably a year where there are no great teams, but it is possible that it's just going to take a little while for them to separate. I've been impressed by Seton Hall, even though they've lost twice. I've been impressed by Michigan State, even though they've lost twice. I've been impressed by Kentucky when they're healthy. I've been impressed by Duke. I've been impressed by Auburn. I've been impressed by Kansas, Dayton, et cetera. So maybe there are the good teams. It's just going to take a little while longer to get going. All right, last little thing as we wrap. Uh, a lot of college football on the back end of the show, but I did want to, before we get going... University of Kentucky, because I, there was some really bad news that came out of Kentucky earlier this week. Nate Sestina, the grad transfer, has suffered an injury. He is going to be out for at least the next three to four weeks. That is an optimistic timeline. That is what John Calipari has said uh, about the injury. I don't know if I buy that because Ryan Lemon, who's really plugged in in Kentucky, says that it could be much longer. It could be closer to February or, or March until Nate Sestina comes back from his injury. And so, listen, this is disappointing. You feel, first of all, you just feel terrible for Nate Sestina. He is a grad transfer. He is a guy who came to Kentucky to be on the biggest stage, to play in these big games. He's not a McDonald's All-American. He's not a one-and-done. He, uh, technically, he's a one-and-done in Kentucky, but that's another story. Um, 
he's not taking this situation and experience for granted, right? Some kids come to Kentucky because they feel like they have to go to college or they feel like it's the best place, but they either don't want to be there or they're not fully invested. This kid was fully invested. We've all read the stories. Comes from a small town in Pennsylvania. It meant so much to him. It meant so much to that town to play at Kentucky. And so it's obviously a huge bummer that he's just not playing. And so we wish him a speedy recovery. And I do think it's a very interesting scenario now for the University of Kentucky. And I'll tell you this, I've said it before. I said it five minutes ago in this episode. There are times where I'm just wrong on stuff and I've got to own it. And I'll tell you this, I didn't think the lack of size would be an issue at Kentucky. Fans all offseason were telling me, AT, we got to get Kerry Blackshear. We got to get in Folly Dante. We got to get another big body or we're screwed once the season starts. And I said, ah, I don't believe it. EJ Montgomery will develop, Nick Richards, Nate Sestina. You play Keon Brooks, you play Khalil Whitney at the four, you'll be fine. I might have whiffed on this one. I might have, because this is a team now that is very short in the front court without Nate Sestina. And the one thing I will say, and I listen, I know it's something that Kentucky fans are frustrated with. I get it, is that there isn't a lot of depth, and when you don't have very much depth, it does leave the position that you're in right now where one injury can completely shake up your season, which is going on at Kentucky. That's been a big point of contention. Calipari should have more guys on scholarship. He should have more guys ready to go, etc. I don't think it's a completely lost cause, though. One, I do think Kentucky, Calipari even said it, is that they plan on playing smaller now. They plan on putting Khalil Whitney at the four. They plan on putting Keon Brooks at the four. And maybe this was their destiny all along. Maybe it's always been in their best interest to play Ashton Hagens, Tyrese Maxey, and Emmanuel quickly together. Maybe get Johnny Juzang on the, sh- on the floor for three-point shooting. Or, as I said, use Keon Brooks or Khalil Whitney at the four. Use EJ Montgomery and Nick Richards at the five. I do think it could be good. You're not going to play a ton of teams with a ton of size, so maybe they can get out, they can run, they can play faster, they can be more aggressive on defense, specifically in the backcourt. And I do think that it is, I'm not saying a blessing in in disguise because it isn't. You want your full complement of guys, but maybe it does work out well that they play that version of small ball. I would also add, I would also add, this is now the time for Nick Richards and EJ Montgomery. And I wrote a little bit about this on Kentucky Sports Radio on Wednesday when the news came out. But when people come to Kentucky, when every single guy comes to Kentucky, they come there to prepare to be a pro. Nobody comes to Kentucky thinking, I'm going to come here for four years, get my degree, uh, and then go into accounting. You come to Kentucky to be ready to be an NBA player. So why do I bring that up? It's because we've been hearing all season that this is the last year for EJ Montgomery and this is the last year for Nick Richards in Kentucky because they are planning on going pro after this year because they're planning on being drafted. Well, I'll tell you this. If you're good enough, if you are as good as you think you are, if you are good enough to play in the NBA, if you are good enough to, to be that X factor, well, now's the time to show it. And these are two guys that for different reasons have struggled There's been some injury issues this year. Last year, there was just too much depth in front of them with Reed Travis and P.J. Washington. Um, There's a million different reasons why they haven't played well, even though credit to Nick Richards, he has actually played really well this year. Now's the time. You want to be a pro. E.J. Montgomery, you were a McDonald's All-American. You were a top 10 recruit. You were ranked ahead of Zion Williamson in the recruiting rankings, okay? Well, now's your time. You want to prove that you're an NBA player. Well, guess what? 
There's no one ahead of you on the depth chart. Calipari isn't going to pull you unless you're in foul trouble because he's got to play you. So my whole point with this, again, I'm not saying it's, it's a blessing in disguise. I'm not saying it's what Kentucky wanted. What I am saying is point blank, very simple is this. You can play faster and also... EJ Montgomery, Nick Richards, you've been telling us you're NBA players for two years and three years respectively. It's time to step up and show it because EJ Montgomery, these next three months with either no Nate Sestina or a limited Nate Sestina, this can be your time to shine. I mentioned the CBS Sports Classic against Ohio State. Kentucky plays Louisville. Kentucky plays in the SEC. They're going to be NBA scouts at every single game they play. Well, guess what? Now you got 34 minutes a night to show them just how good you are, to show that you can be the go-to guy down low, that you can be some version of what P.J. Washington was last year. I'm not saying he's going to be P.J. Washington 2.0, but this is your opportunity. So Nick Richards, E.J. Montgomery, this is your chance. Nate Sestina is out, but it doesn't have to be a lost cause. It is up to the guys on the roster, on this team, to determine if they are ready to step up to the challenge. I'm fascinated to watch. I am very interested to watch because I don't think this is the end for Kentucky. I think it can be a little bit of a blessing in disguise, and we will find out if Nick Richards and EJ Montgomery are as good as they say they are. If they are really ready for the NBA, they will step up and be ready to go. All right, and before we get out of here, I do want to talk some football. It is people. I mean, come on. This is a great weekend of college football. And listen, I know we spent the front half of the show talking a lot of college hoops. I know probably people lean more towards kind of being college hoops diehards that listen to this show than being a college football diehard. But you don't got to be a college football diehard to uh, enjoy what is coming here over these next couple of days. Obviously, look, the big games, Auburn, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State, we will get into in a minute. But also, basically, if you follow major college football... Every team is playing a big, massive rivalry game this weekend, whether it's Florida, Florida State, South Carolina, Clemson, Indiana, uh, Purdue in the old Oaken Bucket, Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, who am I missing? Nebraska, Iowa, on and on and on down the list. Wisconsin and Minnesota will decide the Big Ten West. It's a great weekend of college football, but I actually want to start somewhere that I honestly wasn't expecting to start, and that is the college football playoff rankings. And it's funny, right? If you remember back to last episode, I really talked about how maybe for the first time more than any other year, the college football playoff rankings actually matter this year. Because as I told you, and listen, I'm not breaking any new ground by talking about this, but this is a year where... There are three teams that are clearly, at least right now, barring, God forbid, an injury or something major, from what we've seen, it looks like LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson, in some order, are the three best teams in college football, and really, it's why the playoff rankings actually do matter, because look, there's some years where there's one team that's significantly better than everybody else, and everybody's playing for second place, there's a year like last year where... Clemson and Alabama are significantly better than everybody else, and it really doesn't matter who's three and four. But this year, being the number one seed actually does matter because you want to avoid having to play two of the three other teams that are really good, right? If you're LSU, you want to avoid having to play Clemson and Ohio State. Clemson wanting to avoid playing Ohio State and LSU, and Ohio State playing Ohio Ohio State avoiding playing Clemson and LSU. And so it really is important to get that number one seed. But the reason it's funny, ironic, whatever term you want to use, is if you think back to last episode, I actually talked about this. 
I said that last week was a weird, weirdly good week for LSU because I thought that there was a possibility that if Ohio State dominated Penn State, the best team that's been on their schedule so far, that there was a real chance that Ohio State could jump LSU into that number one spot. Instead, what happens on Saturday, LSU basically wins by 50 points. Now, the final score was, quote-unquote, only 36 points, but LSU was up by 50 with, I think, seven minutes to go and ended up and ended up winning by 36, but they dominated the game against Arkansas. Ohio State, meanwhile, good win over Penn State. Nobody's taken away anything from them, but it wasn't that dominating, convincing win that made you say, you know what, there is no doubt this is the number one team in college football. Let's move them past LSU. Only what happened on Tuesday night? Ohio State jumped Clemson, jumped LSU to get to that number one spot. And I'll tell you this, guys, is that, listen, I think there's sometimes there's narratives in sports that are a little overblown. And one of them that I've always kind of believed is like the committee for college football playoff. Like they, they do these week to week rankings and week to week releases. And everyone says, oh, it's just for TV and it's for entertainment. And like, I don't know that I really necessarily believe that. I've always felt like, listen, their job is to react in real time. It is to give information in real time. And so if a team, even if they win, but they don't look good, they should fall. If a team plays somebody really good and they win a game that should jump them over somebody else, then they should be jumped. A few weeks ago, LSU is number two. They beat Alabama. They should jump to number one after beating Alabama. And so I've always defended the committee, but this week it really did feel like, okay, there was no real logical excuse to move Ohio State past LSU. Now, I I will say, there may have been a time and a place. Ohio State obviously plays Michigan this weekend. If Ohio State dominates that game, then yeah, there was the conversation to be had, but I also think that that this wasn't the week. If you were going to jump Ohio State over LSU, this did not feel like the week. Now, the narrative that I've heard, which I actually think is kind of interesting, is that the committee really felt like this was the time to do it, right? Because LSU is going to play Texas A&M this weekend, and then of course they're going to play Georgia next week. And if they beat Georgia, it's going to be hard to drop LSU beyond number two. So you move Ohio State up to number one now. And the question becomes, why do we think that happened? Now, I will say I've heard one very good theory on this. And this is very simply this, is that people are saying, and I think there might be some validity to this, is is that the committee is already setting up the situation where possibly Alabama is the fourth team in the college football playoff and they don't want an, a rematch of LSU and Bama. Now, I'm not saying that it's a done deal and that if Alabama beats uh, Auburn in the Iron Bowl that, it, that they're automatically going to get in because I actually don't believe that at all. But let's be honest here. If Oklahoma loses one of these next two games, I find it hard to believe that the Big 12 is going to have a representative. If Utah loses one of the next two games, they are not getting into the college football playoff. Georgia at number four is, of course, going to play LSU. If they lose, they're obviously not going to get into the college football playoff. And so the possibility does exist that Alabama is going to be the last team standing. Like, I don't think that the committee really wants to put Bama in. But if they win this weekend and everybody else beats each other up, there might be nobody left. So that was the only legitimate reason I heard to move Ohio State ahead of LSU at number one is to avoid the possibility that Alabama's at number four and that we get an LSU-Alabama rematch in the national semifinals. Might be a stretch, might be a conspiracy theory. Maybe the committee was that impressed by Ohio State, but I thought it was a weird move. But I will say I'm not defending the committee, but if that was the reason, 
it does make sense. I think the committee won. I, I'm, I don't think they're in such a rush to get Bama in, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But even if they are, I do think that it's it's probably for the best that we don't get LSU-Alabama in a rematch from the regular season. Frankly, I don't think it's really fair to LSU. I don't, I'm not saying that LSU would rather play Clemson than Bama with a backup quarterback, but it probably isn't fair to LSU. So it'll be something to keep an eye on. But I'll tell you this. I, I do think that if Ohio State does win out, I don't know, man. It's going to be hard for them to move LSU back ahead of Ohio State unless it's just a totally convincing, totally dominating win in the SEC championship game against Georgia. But overall, I have to say, I was pretty disappointed in the committee. I thought there might be a time to move Ohio State ahead of LSU. I don't know it's when if it's the week after LSU maybe played its most complete game of the season, beating Arkansas by basically 50 points. They were up by 50 with eight minutes to go. Arkansas scores late to make it closer. Ohio State struggles against Penn State. We will see as things continue, and I do, speaking of continue, want to talk about some of the big games this weekend, and I'm not going to do, listen, you guys know, now that Nick Coffey's not around as much, I'm not going to break down seven or eight games, because the two games that really matter for the narrative of the season is Michigan, Ohio State, and Auburn, Alabama, and so let's start with Michigan and Ohio State, because I'll tell you this, I think there's a chance that this game could be pretty competitive, and I know that, like, this is what we do in, in media and social media and everything. Like, we want to crush Jim Harbaugh. Michigan's actually been pretty good over the last month, right? And it goes back to something that I've talked about on this show basically since week one of the college football season, which is in the offseason, Michigan, much like LSU, I think they realized they had to modernize the offense that they had. If you remember back to last year, they entered the Ohio State game at 10-1. and They got blown off the field against Ohio State. And the problem was last year is that when Michigan fell behind by two touchdowns third quarter, they just didn't play a style of football that was going to allow them to score enough points to come back to win that game. So they realized they had to score faster, play quicker, all that stuff. And while it was a struggle early, I do think people are sleeping on how well Michigan has played late. So I talked a lot about the Michigan-Penn State game back in late October. And if you remember that game, Michigan fell down 21 to nothing, and I'm not excusing Michigan, but I thought it was pretty incredible. They did a great job on the road at Penn State, battling all the way back. It was 28-21 late in the third quarter, late in the fourth quarter, excuse me, and Michigan drove the length of the field, pass on fourth down, dropped, that would have tied the game. Instead, the pass gets dropped, Ohio, uh, Penn State ends up winning, Michigan ends up losing, but Ever since that game, Michigan has been a completely different team. And if you look at their results, here are the results of Michigan games following that Penn State loss. The Penn State loss, by the way, where they were down 21-0, outscored Penn State 21-7 over the final about three quarters of that game. Since the Penn State game, they beat Notre Dame 45-14, Maryland 38-7, Michigan State 44-10, and Indiana 39-14. So in the four games since Penn State, they have scored no fewer than 38 points, and they have given up no more than 14 points. And again, I know it's so easy to criticize Harbaugh, and maybe I'll look like an idiot come Monday's show, and I'll have to come back with my tail between my legs and say, I'm an idiot, but I think Michigan will be competitive in this game. I don't know if they win, but I think the fact that they are playing, I, I think you could argue they're playing their best football on both sides of the ball of the Harbaugh era. They've always been great on defense. 
and they've been able to dominate on offense in a certain way, which a which is a slow down between the tackles kind of way, but I don't know that they've been as explosive as they've been over the last couple weeks. And I, I, I haven't even mentioned it yet, but don't tell me that Michigan hasn't played anybody because, by the way, Michigan State, Notre Dame, and Indiana are all top 30 defenses nationally. So I think Michigan State can be competitive. The other thing to remember, two things. Ohio State, for as good as they've been, I know it's the last week of the regular season, but they really haven't played tough road games. Now, they've played in tough road environments. They played at Nebraska. Nebraska's not a good football team, though. They played at, you know, whatever. I was going to say Rutgers, but that's not a tough road game. And so they haven't played in an environment like Michigan against a team as good as Michigan. As a matter of fact, here are their four road games at Indiana, at Nebraska, at Northwestern, and at Rutgers. By the way, Rutgers, don't know if you heard, pretty bad. They're 2-9 and nine overall. Uh, Nebraska's 5-6. and six. Uh, Northwestern is 2-9 and nine overall. So they've played the two worst teams on the road in the Big Ten, as well as a good Indiana team, but that's far from a hostile environment, and a Nebraska team that's 5-6. and six. I think this is the toughest road environment they'll go into. Keep in mind also, Justin Fields may be a little bit banged up coming out of that game. Remember, he hurt his hand against Penn State. Uh, he's obviously going to play. I don't know that he's 100%. I bring all this up because the point spread is nine points, and I think there's a real possibility that Michigan keeps this one close. I have taken Michigan in my official picks. As always, by the way, if you want to gamble this weekend, my bookie promo code Torres, 100% sign-up bonus when you sign up. But I think Michigan keeps it close. I like Michigan plus plus nine, but I like Ohio State to win outright. All right, second game I want to talk talk about is the Iron Bowl. Surprise, surprise, right? Auburn hosting Alabama. And as I just discussed off the top, we know what is at stake for Alabama. Alabama wins this game. They are going to very much be in the conversation for that last playoff spot. Now, a couple things. One, I'm not totally sold they're going to win this game. And the bottom line is, look, I, I do think that sometimes Alabama, like, like we do this thing in the media where, oh, the SEC, they don't play anybody, and they play, you know, Western Carolina in, in November, and it's not fair, and all these excuses for how easy it is in the SEC, it's not easy, okay? It's really tough. But the one thing I will say, this year has been pretty easy by Alabama standards. First of all, the out-of-conference game that they play, they usually play one marquee out-of-conference game. This year, it wasn't uh, Florida State or USC or Wisconsin teams that they've played in the past. They play Duke. And they're cross-division cross games in the SEC. As we know, in the SEC, you play the, if you're in the East, you play the East plus two teams from the West and vice versa. Alabama's two crossover games were South Carolina and Tennessee before Tennessee was even playing well. So it's not as though uh, Alabama has dominated good competition. They basically played one really good team this year, which is LSU, and they lost. And so I think we're overhyping Alabama a little bit. I know that Mac Jones has looked good as the quarterback, but I also think you have to remember his only games were against Arkansas, which then fired their coach, Western Carolina, and he's relieved Tua against Tennessee and against Mississippi State. And neither of those games was he like phenomenal. He was good enough. He got the job done. He wasn't great. So I, I'm not sold on Bama. And then I would add this. Auburn is really battle-tested. Auburn is really battle-tested. Auburn has played five teams that were ranked when they played them, 
and four teams that are currently in the top 15 of the most recent college football playoff poll. If you don't know who those teams are, well, they played LSU, which I think I just mentioned, but they're number two in the college football playoff poll. Auburn has played Georgia, which is number four. They've played uh, Florida, which is 11, and they've played Oregon, which is number 14. So the one thing you can't say about Auburn, they are very battle-tested. They are very battle-tested, and credit to Auburn as well, their defense has really held up nicely against these elite teams that they've played. Gave up 21 points to Oregon, gave up 20 points to Texas A&M, which was ranked at the time, 24 to Florida, and this is the key one, 23 points to LSU. That was by far LSU's lowest point total this season. And so when I look at Auburn, the one thing I know, the one thing I know about both teams coming into this game is the one thing I know is Auburn plays real defense. I don't know how good Alabama's offense is going to be when Mac Jones faces a real defense. I know Alabama's defense isn't good, and I know Auburn's offense isn't very good. The one part that I can rely on is Auburn's defense. If you're if you're going to bet anything, bet the under here. But I think Auburn's good enough to pull the upset. Now, I will say, a lot of people like Alabama here, and I do get it. I don't agree, but I get it. Because Alabama, of course, is playing for playoff positioning, which we talked about at the top. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. All I'll say is this, is that I've seen a lot of people saying, well, you know, if Alabama wins by 50 and this and that, Remember, it goes back to what I said on the last episode, the last couple weeks. For Alabama to get into the playoff, let's assume Oklahoma wins out and Utah wins out. Alabama has to prove that they are, and this is the playoff committee's words. Remember, when the playoff committee is thinking about adding a non-champion, a non-conference champion, the word that they have put in their bylaws is that that non-conference champion has to be unequivocally better than a conference champion. And I think Alabama, if they don't dominate Auburn, and I don't think they will because Auburn's defense is really good, I don't know how you can make the argument that Alabama, as a one-loss non-SEC champ, is unequivocally better than Utah or unequivocally better than a one-loss Oklahoma team. So I think Alabama, even if they win this game, even if they dominate Auburn, Beating a four-loss Auburn team is basically going to be their entire resume, and I think it's going to be tough for them to make the argument coming out of next weekend that they are the fourth-best team in college football, but maybe Oklahoma loses, maybe Utah loses, who knows, but I'm still not sold that Alabama is in position to make the playoff. As I discussed, I do think the committee is preparing for that situation by putting Ohio State at number one, but we will see in the coming weeks. We will see what happens with Bama this weekend and if Alabama ends up as the team that dominates and gets themselves in the playoff position. All right, I think I'm done. I think that's all I got for today's Aerator Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening. Again, I know I said it, but I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you're listening to this and enjoying this on the on the drive home from your family, on the drive to work on Friday, on the drive to work Saturday, on the drive to whatever game you're going to on Saturday morning. But I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, I want to remind you guys, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go, by the way. SoundCloud, not SoundCloud, I sound like a rapper now. Yeah, check my SoundCloud out. Uh, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify. 
please make sure, if you don't mind, give us a quick rating and review. Give us a quick five stars. Tell us how much you like us. Tell, tell us how much you love us. Also, make sure you're following on Instagram, at Aaron underscore Torres. Uh, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. And again, if you're going to be in Vegas, this thing is happening. It is official. I have a day. Clear your clear your schedules for Friday afternoon. Uh, Kentucky will play Ohio State on Saturday, and of course UNC and UCLA will play on Saturday as well. But on Friday, we will be having a get-together. It'll be about 3 o'clock. As I said, happy hour specials. We'll have some, might have a couple buckets of beer ready to go when you guys get there. Drink specials, appetizers, things of that nature. I will get you all the details in the coming weeks. But if you're going to be in Vegas, please let me know. Hit me up at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Send me a DM. A bunch of you guys have. Send me a DM on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Wherever you think you can get in touch with me, let me know. We are going to have a lot of fun in Vegas. We're going to get that Friday night started off right for you. So let me know if you're planning on being in Vegas because it is going to be bananas, okay? And I'll get you all the details. We're going to have flyers printed up, all that stuff. I'll get you the details, but reach out to me so I can include you in this list. I can let the restaurant know how many people are coming. All right, that is it. I am exhausted. I am going to go finish, eat some leftovers, but I want to thank you for listening. Shout out to Stephen F. Austin. Shout out to Dayton. Obi Toppin. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig over there in Australia. I will be back Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.